Welcome to Season 2, Episode 11 of Song Chronicles. Our special guest today is an Ivor Novello-nominated songwriter, Thomas Walsh, who is the man and songwriter behind the Irish pop-rock band that goes by the name of Pugwash. Pugwash have released six albums and toured through the UK before Thomas returned the band to its roots as a solo project with the most recent album, Silver Lake. Thomas is a walking encyclopedia of music and an incredible writer of melodies. We talk about the Duckworth Lewis method. He shares about the sense memories he associates with 70s music. What it's like to get to work alongside some of his most highly revered heroes, including Ray Davies of the Kinks and Jeff Lynne of Electric Light Orchestra, who told him a funny story about how George Harrison found his awards to be highly valuable in the garden. If you want to know how an Irishman learns his L.A. geography, please enjoy my conversation with Thomas Walsh. Well, it's great to see you. I hope you brought an interpreter for my language. I'm going to talk posh. If I start to pronounce my THs, like instead of saying tanks, as in the military kind, instead of thanks, because I don't pronounce my THs. Go right ahead. Yeah. <laughs> well, first of all, tell me about your living situation, because I know you had a move and it was a whole big thing and... Now you're settled somewhere. So what happened? The place that you've been living for years, you couldn't stay in anymore? Yeah, I basically lived in a in an apartment for most of my life, as in when I started to have sexual intercourse with females. Well, one female in particular, Louise, my apologies. I met a girl and I got a place separate to my mother's, obviously, because I was living in my mother's. Mm-hmm. And I got this little bedsit apartment. And this was like early 90s in Ireland, in Dublin. And of course, Dublin wasn't... The Celtic Tiger was only beginning, you know, that kind of phrase where we had such an incredible amount of wealth in the 90s for, for everyone. And it was just before all that, it was when it was starting. So I had a brilliant time leading up. But then, of course, you wake up when you're 45 and you go, OK, the girl is gone, which she had. And, oh, my life is gone as well. And I'm still in a bedsit living with the mice and no hot water and all the usual stuff that attributes to a bedsit. But of course, bedsits became illegal then in Ireland because of access for wheelchair and stuff. So they all became, you know, you have to have kitchens well away from toilets and, you know, ramp access and all this. So they literally became extinct as a thing. So I had to move and I had to look. But of course, I went looking in Dublin, but Dublin had become this metropolis that was impossible to live in. So I just looked outside Dublin, went to the counties and I found a place, beautiful little house. So I rented it and I was there for six years. And where's that in relation to where you were in Dublin? Well, it's pronounced County Loud, which would be L O U D, would be the way you'd say it perfectly. Yeah. It's spelled L O U T H. It's equidistance between Belfast and Dublin. So it's north of Dublin. It's a great old town. You know, it's kind of like Dublin was in the 70s, with everyone being friendly, neighbors, and leaving the door open, all that kind of stuff. And. I loved it, but I got a letter just saying you have six weeks to get out because their lovely bank has taken your property back because your landlord was corrupt. So me and about 50 other people around the town had to move. 
And uh, and I was very lucky. I found a place not far, and it's a beautiful little place. And mm. I have a garden now, and I have space. Well, I don't have space. Well, I do have space, but because all my records are still in the boxes, I've kind of had a panic attack about boxing everything again if I were suddenly torqued out of here. So I'm sure you've done it in your life when you've moved, Louise. It's so horrific that you just don't want to do it again. So you leave and have that stuff in the boxes. Yeah. <laughs> Have you ever done that? A lot of people just keep paying for storage because they don't see it and they don't know it's there, Mm -hmm. but they don't want to part with it. And every month, keep it out of my sight, but don't throw it away. Yes, that's exactly it. Yeah. Yeah. In fairness, it is happening a lot more in Ireland. There's a lot more storage units uh, appearing because, I mean, you know, Ireland is so small and, and there's a lot of people in certain parts of it. Mm. You know, if you looked at it on a map, Dublin should be lopsided because, you know, it should be falling into the Irish Sea. Because there's so many people in Dublin, then there's literally nobody else for miles. And then, but um, yeah, so that's my living situation. I'm settled now, thank God. But uh, it was pretty horrific during the summer. Yeah, I remember reading your posts, but I'm really glad oh. to hear that you've landed somewhere you're happy with. Thank you very much. Yes, I am very happy. Yeah. And before we go into Pugwash and all your projects. You are like a walking encyclopedia of music. I mean, you talk about your record collection. You have more records probably than anyone I know, right? And you've been collecting them forever. And you know what's on all of them. And you know the inside stories about what's on all of them. And how did you get like that? Well, do you know what? The older you get, I think the more you realize what you're born with, you know, because you can't explain why a five or six year old becomes obsessed with buying a record. There's something that has to be inside you to make that happen in a way. Now, obviously, the outside world has to come to you with records and with those things to make you go, well, what's this? But music and records and things like that just meant so much at that early stage. And all the memories are tempered with, you know, music in your in your mind, you know. Of course, like everyone, you hear a song and you can go back to a taste or a smell. Yeah. Uh, which is always incredible, really, you know. In the 70s, we were sucking and eating everything that was made in a lab. That's what the genius of the 70s was. Everything was colourful and tasty and full of sugar and all those naughty things. But, you know, that's the thing about it. There's a very vivid taste and smell to all that time. And, of course, the music was phenomenal, you know, because we're so lucky to grow up. I mean, you look at yourself and your, your parents and, and what they've added to that incredible, you know, legacy of, of rock and roll and music and pop mm. that we've all had the real pleasure to grow up in. That's amazing. But, you know, there's a lot of times that people never had this kind of luxury and never had to be grown up in the same time as the Beatles, Elvis Presley, you know, all the greats. And we're very lucky. So that was seeping in. My father was a big Frank Sinatra fan and Perry Como. So I know a lot of that stuff. Sammy Davis, a lot of the 78s, Buddy Holly. He had all the 78s. I saw all the 78s. He had Pat Boone. He loved Pat Boone. So I remember, everybody's going to have a rhythm and glory. Everybody's going to have a singing story. A wonderful time up here. I think it is. Glory, hallelujah. And the platters. He loved the platters. I loved the uh, uh, twilight time. I love the platters. His dad used to play on 78. It's twilight time. Anyway, then of course we had early 70s, so we had Mark Boland and we had Bowie and we had Wizard, which was Roy Wood, especially over this part of the world, very successful and and all those kind of things. And then of course Abba and Al Stewart and all, and Mike Oldfield and ELO and it all became that big mash. 
Mm. of stuff. Amazing. Yes. Well, it's a great question because, yeah, so literally when I see a record, like the label mm-hmm. is a big thing. So let's even start about record labels because that's why even when I reissue an album now or reissue a record or I'm involved in, if I'm involved in any release where obviously there's vinyl involved, which just has been a lot lately. Like I have a little deal with this Sugarbush Records in England just to reissue my old catalogue. And they're brilliant. They do great work. But I put my own money into making sure all the artwork is remastered and the fact that I make up labels, specific labels for the record because all the people that are on their label, they just let the company put their Sugarbush label on the label, mm. you know, on the record. And it's a standard. It's just a standard record company label. But I can't have that, you know, because the label has to be beautiful and almost be associated with the record. So I always have these brilliant labels. And so because when I was a kid and I saw the Polydor label, especially the Parlophone label and labels like that, they absolutely mesmerized me. I mean, that Polydor one with the little half record, yeah that's just that has such an amazing i mean i got goosebumps thinking about that label you know but it was as i was playing slade or you know it was playing these great records and it was like that's another part of getting to know what's on that wax you know the label you know we had that impression of them but they don't mean the same thing as what they used to mean before i'm not saying they should because people can move on and do what they like but for me they still have the meaning yeah so if i'm involved in any release like it's like jumping ahead to say the Duckworth lewis method which i did with neil hannon mm-hmm. you know neil wouldn't really care about the vinyl aspect of any release you know, really, he's just not like that. And that's totally fine. And he'd be wondering why I want to be involved in every part of the process. But I was the one pushing to get labels on the vinyl that was, you know, tracks other sides. So we had like a picture on one side, you know, that kind of thing. There's no text on one side and you have all that. that that's all very 70s and, and stuff. And I think it, because it meant so much to me, it, it could still mean a lot to younger people nowadays because... Those feelings don't go away. They just get pushed to the side, really. I listened to, I think it's called For the Warmth of You. Oh, yeah. I was so moved by it. That's such a beautiful track. You said oh, you, you wrote it sometime when you're feeling kind of low or I don't know. It's otherworldly. Well, thanks so much. That means a hell of a lot coming from yourself. And I, I will tell you the story behind that. That's actually about my mother. Wow. And weirdly, I, I wrote a song about my mother when she passed away for the 2005 album, Jollity, which just came out again on vinyl for the first time. And I ended up doing strings in Abbey Road. Was it the section? Yeah. You know how good they are. You know, they're my go-to strings. I love them so much, you know. Yeah. They're all just amazing people. And, you know, all their success is fantastic because they're such talents and they give time and they give respect to other artists. They're great. They're just wonderful. I love them. So, yeah, it was them in 2004 or so on Abbey Road. We had this wonderful time. I think they were touring with Grant Lee Buffalo. It was led by Grant Lee Phillips, who now does his solo thing, who's also the town troubadour on Gilmore Girls. Yes. And you know what? Yeah. I've never known. I've never made the connection between Grant Lee Buffalo and Grant Lee Phillips. Can you believe that? So anyway, yes. Yeah, so they were doing so. And he, I think he had to pull out a couple of gigs and they had some downtime and we went to every road but the song my mother was called I Want You Back In My Life and it came very quickly to me so it was like give me seven seconds of it give me seven minutes give me seven hours give me, you know it, it, that was the theme Why must the birds fly south on me just when I need them to sing me to sleep all of this silence hurts my ears such a shame that the wind doesn't whistle at you 
Take me back to waiting for you See the world through my youth again Bring me home to the warmth of you Yeah, it really works. And you don't really come to you quick the ways that the best ones. They always are the best ones. Mm. I think it was probably about seven minutes where I, I wrote it all. So it was great, and I was very proud of it. But to the warmth of you, I remember a few years later when I, when I had when I gave up drink and I had this really bad, well, my medical stuff happened because I drugged myself into a fucking stupor and paid for it, still paying for it. And uh, it was a very downtime. But the things that get you through, or the things that comfort you, are the memories of your mother or your youth. You know, things like that. And I always specifically remember waiting for my mom to come home from a shift in work. She didn't work a lot in her later life but she had a little bit of work very early in the 70s when I started to remember things and I'd sit by the fire on this little poof you know they, they call them poofs I'm sure they still do but they're like little cushiony things with cheap plastic around them holding them together and lots of Irish families would have them beside the fire and they'd born to a fucking crisp <laughs> you know they just melt and uh, they turn into their own shapes and everything but uh, in the lyrics I remember saying um uh, sitting by the fire and waiting for you and stuff and it's it just very simple memory that was in my head mm. and and kind of questioning the fact that why am I getting all this shit now and like why can't life still be as simple so I'm glad you picked up on the reality of it all my lyrics are quite real I don't first album I wrote silly songs because that's the way I thought I'd be writing you know about made up people psychedelic kind of stuff so do you ever write from the point of view of someone who isn't you like you put yourself in the head of another human no i have to say no and that's the weird thing because i've done this kind of third person thing which is weird i you know it's almost like i can make up a fake persona and do something like that but it annoys me almost because it almost comes back to to me you know I, I, I don't know whether you feel that way about your writing, but it always seems to come back. If I'm in a happy place in my life, if I've written any sad songs, I just don't want to do them. I just don't want to put that out into the universe. I don't want to play them over and over, which is kind of messed up to a certain extent. But, you know, I'm sensitive to the music. Yeah. It's a dialogue that I'm constantly having with my subconscious almost that's out there for public consumption. But I don't want to get into that headspace sometimes. And I consciously choose. You're making your, you're easily making your best ever music for me. What's that? You're easily making your best ever music, you know, now for me. I mean, I think your last couple of records would blow everything away really previously, you know. Well, that, that means a lot from you. Thank you. You know, so it's almost like you're getting better. Do you believe that that's... I shouldn't be asking you questions, by the way, but, you know, I, I, like, I never know making a good record ever. I'm just saying because, to me, I think you're getting a hang of it, you know, because I don't think I'll ever get a hang of all this because it's so fucking difficult and stupid. And You know, even recently, I, I've written my new album, but because of so many things in the last few years, I couldn't get my head even... I mean, I don't even pick a guitar though for like six, eight months. Now, that's the God's honest truth. I don't even touch the fucking thing. You know, it, it, it's like they make me angry if there's nothing coming out. I can't sit around and play and practice. I just can't do it. And that's why I don't believe I'm in the same league as lots of things. And I don't look for that kind of, you know, idolatry. It's just that I genuinely 
Again, talking about Neil being here today, he just writes when he wakes up in the morning. I think in a way you do as well. No, I don't. My kids do. They walk into a room, they pick up things with no attachment as to turning it into a song for the joy of that in the moment. So sometimes I actually tie my hands so I can finish the things I've started because this distractive new universe might be my next thing. Well, I'll tell you, Louise, that's, again, it's, it's kind of nice to hear from you because in that respect, because uh, I, I, I thought you'd be kind of an everyday thing. You are in your own way anyway, but it's just that I'm so much chasms of time. I'm not doing musical stuff, but it's always there, you know, and it's always annoying me. I'd rather it was an everyday thing and I enjoyed it. That's the thing. It's, there's a lot of non-enjoyment about what I do until a certain point when I, it's the greatest thing in the world to me and it means so much to me. So the process is fucking painful for me. And, and, you know, and I remember hearing an interview with Billy Joel years ago. Mm-hmm. And he said, like, he fucking hates lyrics or something. He sweats blood over writing stuff. And, you know, he really goes into this horrible place. And I'll give you an example. Like, if I was settling down to watch, I don't know, a football match or something, you know, or something like a comedy on TV, and I made a lovely sandwich, you know, chicken sandwich and a cup of tea and I felt really tired and I was like oh, I'm going to enjoy this I'm going to watch some TV I walk into the room with the guitar in it and all of a sudden I go oh, something kind of goes pick it up you know so I pick it up while I'm getting the tea tail jing 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 and I go oh shit that's actually good <laughs> it's actually good <laughs> oh you know like blah blah blah, blah, blah. yes Oh, shit, that's actually good. I know the next three fucking hours I'm going to be sitting on the bed trying to finish this thing and the sandwich has gone hard, the comedy's fucking on pause, the tea is cold, you know, I've got pains in me fucking back sitting on the bed. I kind of go, why is this what I do? Why does everything about this feel shit, but I have to do it? And, you know, the, the answer to it all is, because I don't want to sound too terrible here, but the answer to it all is because it's the greatest thing in the world to be able to do if you can do it with a modicum of decency. Yeah. And that's where I'm at at 52. I'll probably have a modicum of decent songs, you know, and that's what I do. And the fans, it is the fans, you know, because they give you the feedback. You yeah, know. it means something. Yeah. And not everyone knows how to finish that good idea or recognize, oh, shit, this is actually good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's the tagline for the fucking interview. It's true, isn't it? You know, when you, it's the last thing you want to do, but, but this fucking masochist brain kind of goes, no, but I'm going to give you the best idea you've had in six months now. So fuck you. Yeah, That's- and you don't even know what that is. I'd use it as fuel to, oh, get, yeah. to get me going. And and then, you know, do something else. And then, you know, what would happen if you just owned it and said, you don't have to prove to yourself, you don't have to prove to someone else that you're as good as that thing you think is great. What if you just took that for granted and then wrote from a different point of fuel, which is, what do I want to create? What do I want to say? you know, and get past that thing of proving something to yourself or other people. Because, you know, that's the way we get going when we're young. But then after a while, I realized, like, I've been doing it so long that some of those things have come and gone and been cool and are not cool anymore, you know? And if you outlive them, then you just become your own thing. Yeah, and that's a huge important point, really, is longevity. Mm -hmm. Because people, it's almost like for 25 years, a lot of critics or a lot of people in the business who are still doing their thing might have taught you are shit. 
And they might have had a reason to think you were shit. And they may have really believed you were shit deep down. But suddenly those same people turn around and start saying lovely things about you because you're still alive and still doing it. You know, it's almost like, okay, like those elements of people in the business, as they say, they have to behave like that because that's the only way they can get ahead. So it just shows you the, the futility of critics and all that. Anyway, I suppose that's another thing. But it's amazing that you just start to get accepted. And I'm kind of sitting around going, well, I haven't really done anything different. You know, I haven't suddenly brought a, a funk jazz album. You know what I mean? It's, what the fuck is this? I'm still doing the same. Well, maybe it's the beard. <laughs> I think it's the fucking beard. It's the beard. And it's the fact that you have a you have a mirror in the fucking attic for the eternal young youth that you have. What the fuck? But anyway, uh, yeah, it's it's really weird that there's an acceptance. And I'm feeling it in Ireland. My status in Ireland is quite weird, but I'm kind of loved by all the really important people in the music industry. But it's like anything else, you know, a lot of people were, but they can die alone and had no money and the usual shit that goes on. But I think... I want to keep making records because there are more melodies I want to give to the world, I suppose. And I, I never really think I've got more to say because it's basically just me reflecting me. So you won't really hear me saying I've got more to say because I really don't have a lot more to say. I just have more life that I'm living. But melodies, I'm very obsessed with getting some more new melodies and better melodies and all that kind of stuff. So You have great but, melodies and a great voice. Thank you. So I'm going to ask you, if you were to put together some of your favorite things that you've done and what, you know, songs would you put on that list? Pugwash, Thomas Walsh, your other side project with Neil. Yes. What would you put on that list? So let me get this straight. You're definitely asking about my own songs. Yes. Well, well, see, I don't get asked that at all. Yeah, but does the question bother you? Oh, you've got to understand, we might as well get this out here early and, and get it said. Irish people, it takes a hell of a lot to offend Irish people, honestly. It really has to take something really well thought out, disgusting, horrible, uh, insulting, and just annoying. Is that because you grew up with James Joyce? (laughs) That's because we grew up with people who always believed it was our fault that everything was happening. So, you know, I'd come out of school and go, the teacher hit me with a fucking ruler. And they go, what did you do? (laughs) Well, this is the thing. It's like uh, when you're a kid and that happens, you go, why don't you believe me and all that? But, you know, the great thing is it opens your mind to such a huge other world of acceptance for people because it just means that, you know, even my parents sound to me like they're tolerating the guy that smacked me across the head with a river. So you can tolerate people. It's a really weird thing. So that's why Ireland just get talking about the Irishness it's a very tolerant country you know we can accept a lot of people into this country like we have done and it's just we don't give a shit you know we don't you know the refugee thing and all we just accept them and we love them and they become neighbours and friends now of course there's always tiny elements and all that stuff I could really be nerdy and do an album by album because it's the way I remember okay. my own songs okay your favourite songs on each record yeah go okay well my first album was Almond T and the biggest track on that for me was The Finer Things in Life which is my first single mm. but I wrote it when I was about 19 or 20 and I demoed it and it sounded like a Pink Floyd song it, like a big clattery drum machine and, and spacey sounds and stuff And uh, but it turned into a really lovely ballad and and resonated with a lot of people and became a bit of a well-known song for me here. And I kind of thought at 19, yeah, I'm very proud of the way that worked out. It's very Lenin-y, you know, has all those Lenin chord changes. Stepping up chord changes that would 
diminished or whatever the fuck we are. And I still don't, I don't ask you about names of chords because we'd be lost. I'm with you on that. Augmented fifth or diminished thirds yeah. or, yeah. As we used to say, P demolished. <laughs> that fantastic chord. If I fell, would you stop to pick me up? If I'd cry, um, would you But yes, so finer things in life is a track I really like and funnily enough just, here's one I'd like you to answer actually but uh, you're probably more prone to this with your extensive catalogue but it's the one song that I have that I'd like to re-record and I, I re-recorded It's Nice To Be Nice recently for this Disney cartoon and I didn't enjoy the process because I really thought I nailed that originally so I just did it as a, a get out clause publishing thing or whatever you know the usual re-record it and send that version because you can't get the other version because of all of our deals and silliness that goes on mm-hmm. in this world but um so that's the one song for me finding things and like i'd like to re-record i mean is there one in your canon that you'd like to do again or i've revisioned three of my tracks did you put them on albums like newer albums yeah i did bridges size on uh, all these hellos which i had released yes you did actually and people loved the original that's the one i know yeah yeah mitchell Froome told me that he thought i nailed it the second time he said you did it better yeah brilliant so i I was really happy and i didn't feel like it was instead of it to me it's saying you know what, this song exists and I would like to do this song as who I am today. Yeah, but that was the motivation. Yeah, that was the motivation and the song really held up. It still really holds up. Another song that I never released, but I attempted to do versions of, I think, three or four times was a song I wrote in 91 called The Heart is the Last Frontier. And I did that on my last record, two different movies. And I, and I was really happy with that. And then the very first song I ever recorded with Dave Way was Fifth of July, which Terry Reed had covered. I mean, I got my record deal with Warner Brothers based on the demo of that song. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant. So that's the answer. On the fifth of July. Well, it's funny because uh, the motivation is the big thing, isn't it? Like, the motivation for the It's Nice To Be Nice re-recording was just that it was needed. And, you know, there wasn't a real, genuine, soulful motivation to, to do it again. So I didn't really enjoy it. It just shows you there has to be a, an inner motivation to redo a track. You have to be really believing you're going to say something or you're going to present something say sonically better but you're also going to probably portray it in a better way than you did first time it's nice to be nice as my mama once said it's good to be good and it's fun to be fun it's nice to be nice as no
I mean, especially with me on the first album, we made the album with ADATs, which are archaic fucking things. And we had the only four ADAT machines in Ireland to mix the record, and one of them kept falling apart, so it was like an, an 18 day mix on a debut album that cost about four grand in total. Wow. And it was all for hurrying out ADAT machines. And uh, to me, you kind of look back and you go, well, there's lots of other things going on there. Maybe I didn't get that track across. But that's the first album. I'll go to the second album of my tracks. Mm-hmm. So the first one was Final Things in Life. The second album was Almanac, which came out and the record company dissolved about two days after it came out. Mm-hmm. So it was on sale for about twenty nine ninety nine at the shops because they'd lost all our money. And, uh, and now th- this, these were great people and great friends, but they, they really ran a very low-key label mm. in Ireland. And they just kind of had enough, you know, they were losing too much. But Almanac still only cost about six grand to make in 2001, around that time, 2000, 2001. And I'm very proud of that record because I got access to a real Mellotron on that record and I went nuts. It became the Mellotron album, you know. Why not? Exactly, because to me, it's the most timeless instrument there's ever been next to the fucking guitar or so. <laughs> so anyway, with that record, I, I threw the whole kitchen sink. I mean, I kind of call it the kitchen sink or the difficult second album I was going to in the usual shite. But uh, I really like that record because it's ridiculous. But on that record, there's a song called Everything We Need, which I, I just like because in a way, I'm saying this to you because you asked me would I be offended by that question, which is, is weird. It offends no way, but you kind of get, how the heck can I put it? You get embarrassed to say that's a really good one, don't you? Because you're raised to, to be modest. Well, yeah, and also it's your own music and people kind of go, who does he think he fucking is? Who does she think she is? But I do like to because I never do this and I never do that aspect. No one ever asks about your own stuff, really, you know. And so there's things I am very proud of. And that track, I am very proud of. I think the melody goes around in a circle, which is lovely sometimes, you know, and melodies go around a circle. I love that. I got so much to say. I got so much to do. And it's all because of you. And the sweetness that you bring All my senses are full To the point of overflow And it's all because of you And the happiness you bring In a week a moment time We get a pain I wouldn't mind You know, it's not a little more than a nice jaggedy you know alps mm-hmm. you know the alp mountains type up and down and all this jagged edges but uh, i like when they go around in circles and make nice melody. so everything we need on that record and the next album was jollity and i suppose it's nice to be nice it's a very big song for me in ireland and in, in my career i mean it if anyone ever cared when I popped me clogs, that will be the song. Mm-hmm. And it's so fine, you know, and it's a silly song. But again, I had an idea when I was making that song, putting it together that I wanted it to be a certain type of song. I got obsessed with Brian Wilson in them years. Uh, and he started to really seep into the writing and, and into the production. The thing is, it's not like you go, I want this to sound like a Beach Boys song. But you kind of go, yeah, but I definitely want that kind of jing, jing, jing thing. And, you know, you start to do all these jigsaw puzzles in your head. Mm-hmm. Um, so so that would be that one. Next album was 11 Modern Antiquities, which is coming out any day now on vinyl for the first time. That was voted one of the 100 Irish albums to hear before you die in a very famous book. 
up there with the U2s and the My Bloody Valentines of this world and all those kind of things, you know. So uh, very proud of that. I had two in that book, actually, because the Duckworth Lewis debut made it in as well. But on that record, I wrote Here, a song called Here, which is a, a song about a failing, fucked up kind of relationship. And it kind of says it all. And a lot of people have reacted to that. And when that gets played on radio in Ireland, the reaction does be incredible because the only thing I wrote, it's nice to be nice in a lot of ways. So two big radio shows in the last year had me on in Ireland. Two of the biggest. And I got an incredible response because that song was played twice. And I, I love the recording of it and I'm, I'm proud of the melody so that would be that song so next yeah. up is the first Duckworth Lewis album okay and I think on that album there's a song called Mason on the Boundary which I mean they're all co-writes because we wrote everything together essentially but as you know with co-writes Louise you can bring 90% of a song to a co-write obviously you know so you do believe a lot of it was there you totally respect the other person who's put their 10% in but I can safely say, yeah, that's one of my favourite songs because it's mainly me. Mm-hmm. Uh, Neil had this song called Jiggery Pokery, which was a huge Duckworth Lewis song. It was so brilliant. And he wrote that himself. And I added a couple of words when I listened to it just to fix stuff up. Firstly, nothing. And that was his genius because I appeared at the songwriting session that day with this particular other song, Gentlemen and Players. And we demoed a really great demo of that and we got excited because the project wasn't going to be a project, it was just going to be fun. But of course, with Neil's intense talent, he kind of went, oh, you bugger. That's, that's a good one. On a sunny summer's day We'll enjoy a full day's play Out on the boundary Oh, 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 oh,
I was home about two hours from that evening session and he rang me and said, I've something to play in the morning, I've just written it. And it was this almost iconic song now because it's that's been everywhere, that song, the one hero, Jiggery Poker. Competitive edge of partners like Lennon and McCartney. It's so great when you find somebody like that, isn't it? Because you, yeah. you've done a lot of co-writing as in... You go to the seminars and you go to those places, which I've never gone to because they kind of frighten me. <laughs> and I wanted to talk about that, actually, Louise. About the, I mean, I, I do believe they're a good thing, but are they something that does bring out incredible stuff? Or is it just a way of teaching the general public about the art of songwriting? I don't go to seminars. I've gone to songwriting retreats, which are different things. And they're not workshops. They're um, It's kind of handpicked people that show up somewhere and usually there's someone behind it who says okay today you're gonna write with those two people and you just go and write a song so there's no workshop or teaching it's just people being put on a scene with a uh time limit you got to write a song by this time then it's dinner and then you can record it after dinner or you have to perform it that day and you have the edge of "Ooh, we want to play this for everyone so let's get this done and um what happens to me is i don't have enough time to think myself out of things and sometimes these so-called throwaway songs you know i come back and i go "Ooh, that's a good one and that's a good one and sometimes the pairing is really like the last thing that you would pick you know you go like why'd they put me with that person but there's always a reason you always find out you learn something you made a great friend maybe you got a great tune and it expands your world and your network of songwriting and i find them really I find them to have been amazing. And I talk about them like they're thing of the past because right. who knows with COVID these days, you know? Nowadays, we're just kind of getting together. We're just having a bit of fun. And there's nothing wrong with fun, of course. Jesus Christ, we all need more of that. But I'm always thinking there, there should be an end to this. It shouldn't just be a thousand songs sitting on a, around a campfire going nowhere. You know what I mean? Because Ireland as well, it, it, it doesn't have shit like that. It does if you go looking. But in America, when I eventually got to America... All those things suddenly became normal. And I was like, well, this is actually really good. You know, this is actually something that is beneficial. I had so many opinions of things like that over the years. If I've heard something like, oh, there's a little bit of a get-together for songwriters. And I go, oh, God, I'm avoiding that. That do me heading. But when you go to America and it's a different world. You've got your own community and you've got, you know, your writing partnership with Neil that you do sometimes. And, yeah, we could jump ahead, you know, to talk about Jason Faulkner and of all these bands that were your heroes that have since come back and just said to you they love what you do that must feel amazing for you to have that acceptance from people yeah. that, you know were your heroes um even talking to you you know is a special thing because I'm almost a fan force of music Mm-hmm. It almost stands in front of everything I do, like a window pane or something, you know? Yeah. It's almost like that's always ahead of even what I do. And, you know, if Jeff Lynn is sitting at his mixing desk listening to my album, which he did a few times when I was over at Jeff, he hears a chord change and he goes, thumbs up, or I know what you did there and all this kind of stuff. It's kind of like, Jeff fucking Lynn, listen to me. You know, and especially with someone like him, because I idolize him I said years ago as a joke you know he's the only man I'd have sex with I said it in an interview and uh, it actually was quoted back to me a few times thank god Jeff doesn't look at the fucking press but you know it was kind of like I wanted to get across how much this man meant to me when I was growing up the thing is I know all Jeff Lynn's frailties I'm not obsessed with everything because I know he's the most basic lyric writer on the planet 
You know, I mean, you know, Jeff talks about the sun, moon and rain and the weather and that's Jeff, really. But it doesn't make a blind bit of difference to me. You know, I couldn't fucking care less. What about Andy Partridge? That's why someone like Andy Partridge can flip your brain and make it go even more besotted because he suddenly is writing like Shakespeare lyrically and has melodies like fucking Jeff Lynne, you know what I mean? Or Lennon or McCartney. And someone like that, you go, oh, Christ. It's like Michael Penn as well. I became obsessed with Michael as well when I was younger because in the 80s especially late 80s early 90s I found somebody I thought I could never find which was somebody who was writing every fucking song I wanted to write as a kid every fucking song I'd hear by him I'd go oh god I knew if this guy goes to A minor now he's my favourite songwriter ever and then he would you know he's just got he just had this thing about his writing which I absolutely love and and he's like a travelogue I can mention all the mentions of LA in Michael Penn songs it's absolutely ridiculous and you know when I eventually went to LA and I saw all the signs and stuff I say oh that's in such and such song that's in such and such song and then he made references which I thought were other things like in my brain so he has a lyric which went mermaid on pico lifts her fin demands a towel right this was a lyric in one of the songs. It was Pico like a mountain. Pico Boulevard. Yeah. I put it in a song too. And I'm like, <laughs> yo, brilliant. And it's like, it's the only points of light are fires on Vermont. He says, and I always thought Vermont was a place away from L.A., Mm. But isn't there a place called Vermont in LA or something? Vermont is an avenue. Yeah. yeah. But there's actually one song which just reels off a whole entire part of fucking Los Angeles. Uh, Santa Ana Wins. I got to know about them to Michael Penn. And uh, Simi Valley, Denton Road, Roosevelt Hotel, Grauman's Chinese. It's, um, yeah, I, and that's why I don't want to die sitting here going, oh, good, COVID. And I'm just going to the East Coast for like eight days. I'm just going to the East Coast mm-hmm. to do gigs because I want to just go back out. And of course, I'm fully vaxxed and I'm, I'm talking with my GP about a possible booster shot. You know, so I don't have any worries. But all the shows I'm doing in people's houses, they're only letting people in who are vaxxed anyway. But I know what you're going to say because traveling for me, there was such a long period of time when I was in a relationship that took over my head and stopped me from going where I should have gone during them years with the music I was releasing. I kept myself quite at home or, you know, I sparsely populated myself around. But as soon as I got to a certain age and things happened anyway, I just went, why haven't I been to America and why haven't I been to Europe? And I've just gone everywhere in the last 10 years, really. And I love it, you know. And, you know, sometimes you don't enjoy a long plane journey. But to be honest with you, all you think about is, like, I've spent 10 hours on a couch watching fucking five episodes of Homeland or something in a row. And, uh, you know, why not just be on a plane to the other side of the world, play music and meet people? It's fantastic. So regardless of everything that's going on in my life, I'm just going again and playing and I don't really give a shit if I fall over or if I fucking whatever I, it's just I have to make the gesture because you travel so much in your youth but imagine you were starting off now you'd probably never travel because if you were a particular way in yourself you probably wouldn't want to travel with the whole COVID thing anyway you know so I think what's helped you when you're writing I'm sure has been travel and the fact that you've seen the world exactly this is a good point I realize so much of a career is based on being on a scene and meeting people when you're young. You go places, you meet someone, you go and do something else. I mean, all of the interviews I've done are filled with that kind of story. And what would it be like now? Now, here's the flip side of that. A lot of time can be wasted pursuing and doing things that are not necessary. You yourself were influenced by Andy Partridge, who set up a shed and didn't want to tour anymore. Mm -hmm. 
right? And you said, well, if he can and that's do what it, I wanted to do. If he can do it, yeah. I can do it. I'm going to take this money and I'm going to set up a shed. I'm going to set up and start recording from home, right? And you got your sound together doing that. The Beatles decided they didn't want to go on tour. They decided they wanted to be a studio band. And in the six years that they were making records in the studio, look what they did. And we're still talking about it and savoring all the material they did now. Even Paul McCartney's savoring it, going like, oh, I think that's pretty good. Yeah. Interesting baseline I did there, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah. So it's not like one is better than the other. I feel like if we embrace the fact that the creativity is God-given and within us, if we decide we're going to travel, it's going to be expressed in those tours and those people and those, you know. But if we stay home, it will be expressed in other ways. It's so true. There was just a brilliant documentary on the BBC about Nirvana coming to the UK. Uh, really emotional, brilliant documentary. BBC made great documentaries anyway, but the fact that they were just an incredibly struggling, really working class fucking seat of pants band who are making a bit of a noise, but had this opportunity by a couple of these independent guys in England and Scotland uh, hearing a single on their Sub Pop. This is before their deal. Oh, huge. Yes, of course. It was on the back of the Sub Pop single and they came to England and of course they had footage from people who took footage of them and all. And it's so exciting to watch because so many bands would have, and you know this, there's even bands in history, even back to the 60s now, where they were saying, we don't want to go there. I have a kid or I don't want to go there because, you know, all that travel and I don't want to be away from X, Y and Z. And just by going, fuck this, we're going to England. And of course, he stayed in this famous little uh, B&B in London, which I never knew had this aura about it because I stayed there twice. Where is it? It's right in Shepherd's Bush. You know the area very well, obviously. And it's just down Shepherd's Bush kind of road. And it's the old buildings on the left around from where the, the green is, you know, the Shepherd's Bush green. Mm -hmm. And it's like the Sensia Hotel or something like that. But it, it's famous because there's famous pictures taken outside of Nirvana. The famous Kurt Cobain face one was taken there on the steps. But Dave Grohl had all this, Chris Novoselic had all this footage of walking around Shepherd's Bush. He's going, Jesus Christ, that's the place I stayed in. And it just shows you what can happen when you just even can go with no money and no clothes but you have your music and you go to another part of the world and they just take you to their heart I mean they became absolutely you know they're Nirvana aren't they for fuck's sake what can we say so the travel thing is always so important isn't it I mean even the Beatles going to Hamburg you know it's such a big thing when they build us straight from Hamburg everyone thought they were a German band in Liverpool when they were saying straight from Hamburg that was always the funny one but George Harrison would have said it. That's what made them the musicians they became because they were playing for 18 hours a day. Yeah. You know, so it's brilliant. You know, and you were saying about the studio, there were only three to four years of studio band. They only became studio band in late 66, early 70, late 69. See, we could talk about the Beatles all day because it blows our minds creatively. They did so much in such a little amount of time. Yeah. You know, absolutely ridiculous. They were like concentrated liquids, weren't they? The other bands were mixed with lots of water and, you know, they were nice and tasty. But the Beatles were the cordial of all time. Yeah. Fuck's sake, you know, double concentrate. And uh, it was ridiculous. So when people ask me about and I talk about ELO and I talk about the Kinks or all these what a great artists, XTC, sometimes you think, oh, what about the Beatles? And they think, well, don't ask a stupid question like that. They sit at the throne ahead of everybody. And they just don't need any more, you know, niceties from me. We all know how incredible they are. Let's talk about the ones sitting at their feet, you know? Give them a bit of a chance. But I can finish off quickly on my songs. Sure. 
because I stopped on the first up with Lewis. So the next yeah. record was the Olympus Sound, which was a big album because I signed to EMI for that in Ireland. And of course, what did I ask straight away when I signed with EMI? They gave me a BlackBerry, by the way. It's my first ever. A BlackBerry? They gave me a BlackBerry in 2010 when I signed. And they were the big thing. And I remember going, okay, I don't know whether you had one in your life, but I actually really liked the BlackBerry as a device. And so that was my thing. I got a freebie from a major. It's all bollocks. And I went to meetings where people would talk about stuff, which is very weird. Because what the fuck? When people are saying, why don't we play a gig at the entrance to this park and all this bullshit that they come up with? So uh, I didn't want to be there. But I was, all I said to them was, can I have access to your original EMI labels? <laughs> That's what I asked. So the album came out with the original 70s Kate Bush EMI and I released two singles one we couldn't get done quick enough to have the label on so there was a a stocky label that I still put together but I wasn't happy with but the second one was Fall Down and you can have a Google later and just see Fall Down 7 inch single and you'll see the EMI 70s label and of course that was a huge buzz for me and what did I do? I got in touch with a guy in England who made reproduction sleeves and I bought 500 EMI reproduction sleeves to go with the single so it looked beautiful Fall Down and getting on to that I think on that record Fall Down would be my track from the Olympus Sound because uh, it's a very simple song but there's a chord change in it I think you'd appreciate as a kind of a writer because you're not one of those when you sit down and your fingers go to a certain place you don't know why and it sounds exactly like you wanted it to sound that was that moment so I have nice memories of writing that song Then the next record we made was the second Duckward Lewis album in 2013. And Jesus, we had everybody on that. Stephen Fry, Daniel Radcliffe, Neil Finn, Nick Seymour. What did Stephen Fry do? Well, this is the track I'm going to pick because uh, I went to the studio in 2012 to do a a cover. Actually, it was a cover that Joe Elliott from Def Leppard was going to sing on because I know Joe very well. And Joe was a big fan of Pugwash. It's another classic, you know, you wouldn't think Joe Elliott, but he really, and he loves Fall Down, the track I just mentioned. So he played it a lot on his classic rock show. Nice. It's a Tom Petty pop, but he loves all that. Anyway, Joe is a lovely, lovely man. I don't know whether you've met him or you know him, but he's such a great guy. He's a brilliant guy and a huge nerd, bigger nerd than all of us. But he was going to sing on this cover of a Move song, the Roy Wood Band from the 60s. And I went into the studio and I sat at the piano in the studio and I just went, da, 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 da. and I went, well, that's actually lovely. Because I can do that on piano. I don't play piano, but I can just make tunes up. And then I don't remember how I did them because my fingers, I even lose melodies on guitar, if I'm being honest, Louise. Fuck's sake. I listen back to a demo and go, what the fuck chords are they? Anyway, I asked Joey, my drummer, to fill in me playing this melody on the piano because I really liked it. And he did. And I still have it. I've put it on Facebook a few times. But it became the whole basis of the song Judd's Paradox, which was on the second Duckworth Lewis method album. When Neil heard the melody and we honed it together, uh, he'd written this piece of poetry in a way which he thought would be brilliant over it. Sweet is the sound as leather bound the well-timed willow strikes. How could he know the lengths to which they go? 
melody but it didn't lend itself to a melody per se and I just said to him you have Stephen Fry's number why don't we ask him because he loved the first Double Lewis album Stephen Fry he, he tweeted about it and that's what made it into the top 40 album wow the Ivan Avello nomination and stuff that came with the first album Stephen Fry tweet Stephen Fry tweet and it was huge and I remember getting a call off Neil's manager that day saying Stephen Fry tweeted about the album and it was huge we did go top 20 in the UK this was the midweeks and Michael Jackson died that week and I think 11 of his albums went into the top 40 in 3 days and we went in at number 40 so we were 26 in the midweeks but you know it didn't make any difference and of course the whole Jackson thing was ridiculous it's great stories but I won't go into all that but. so that track Judd's Paradox I'm very very proud of that song and Stephen did this wonderful narration we went to London to meet him and he, he did it and of course Beautiful Man. Daddy Radcliffe came in on another track that I'd actually written for a kid's cartoon that wasn't picked up. And I turned it into this song called uh, Third Man. And he did a narration bit in the middle. And he asked to be on the album because he loved the first one because he's a big Divine Comedy fan, big fan of Neil's. But he was lovely. He came in with a, a security guard, right, into the studio in London. It was in Guy Massey's mixing studio. And... Uh, he came in and he says, look, I apologize, but I have my bodyguard with me. He says, it's not about, you know, older men attacking me or whatever. He says, it's kids, young kids. He says, have you ever been Harry Potter walking down the street? He says, so he's like Harry Potter walking down the street and kids would just jump on him. Wow. You know, literally scream, grab him. So you have to have a bodyguard. Fucking hell. It's like, you know, kids have nails and fucking everything. You know, he was more being attacked by kids. So we have to have a bodyguard for kids. I get it. So he did some narration on that song. Yeah, he did narration on Tord Man, which is not the track I picked. I picked Judd's Paradox, which was the Stephen Fry one. How do you spell it? Tord Man. T-H-I-R-P-R-D. Oh, Third Man. Yeah. Third Man. <laughs> Say it like shit, man. And really, and I'll tell you, certain words in America, like there's just certain words you do not get. And it's brilliant because I can't say them any different. But when we go into a, a restaurant on our tours and stuff, I we'd all be looking for, you know, because we're big fans of butter right <laughs> now you did you understand that? yeah say boar have you got any boar which is like spreadable you know butter boar boar exactly that's good you got it there and it's such a ridiculous word it's like world or boards or you know there's a certain way you just can't say it so we say have you got any butter they go what the fuck are they saying what and so you'd say it in an american way so you go do you have butter and they'd hear you it's incredible it really is so world world you know the world and so anyway yeah so with that one i love joe's paradox and that was and then I, my next album was the one we did in conk and ray davis appeared on the chance is conk in muswell hill yeah yes it's right in the back garden really as in where they're from it's not exactly but it's very close it's kind of tottenham road it's like all around that area but Guy Massey who I worked with because uh, Guy you know did a lot of Radiohead stuff and, and you know a lot of Neil stuff and all that kind of stuff and, and an English band called The Bees are wonderful and uh, you should check out Free The Bees by the way Louise 2003-2004 brilliant record done in Abbey Road Studio 2 Free The Bees okay Great, great record. And he did do a song which you might know because it became a very famous track for music for ads and stuff. It just became one of those songs. Anyway, great band. But Guy is an immensely brilliant engineer. And I knew Guy well. 
but I got to know him really well on the Douglas Lewis second album because he, he did the whole thing. So we had a chat and of course he's not cheap. He's the upper echelons of the engineering world. But he just said to me, he says, look, I'm working a lot of conk because I could be working on Ray Davis stuff. And he did. He ended up doing Ray's last solo album and working with the Jayhawks on that and doing all that stuff. And the reason why he got the job was that he kind of used Pugwash as the guinea pigs because he says, I can get you in the conk for a good deal. I'll do it for cost or whatever. He, he did a great deal for us. And he says, we'll do the album in conk. And I says, that sounds incredible because fucking hell, I'm the biggest king fan of the world and I'm like yes please but again this is a very dark record for me a lot of shit was going on for all of us in the band so it's a really weird memory and a really weird time but a very special time but of course we were in conk and Ray is there every day almost you don't know he's around he just kind of floats around and of course I was obsessed I tried to meet Ray in the 80s at a ZZ Top gig in Dublin they played a special guest at ZZ Top and we couldn't get into the gig. I was only 16, 1985. And we waited outside till they finished. And we saw him come out in a, in a limousine with Chrissy Hines, right? We tried to follow him through Liverpool on our bikes, cycling. And I started to lash rain and we lost him in the middle of Dublin city centre somewhere and all. It was just... For listeners who don't know, Chrissy Hines and Ray Davies used to be married. Yes. And that was tempestuous at the best of times. <laughs> put it that way but of course I had all these memories and Ray is such an influence you know he's up there he's at the feet of the throne with the Beatles and stuff absolutely you know and anyway so Tosh was sitting across to me my guitar player in the canteen we're all having dinner one of the days toward a fourth day into the sessions and he's sitting facing me and I have, I have my back to the wall kind of and a kind of door and Tosh is eating his dinner and I'm eating away and he just looks over my shoulder and goes hi Ray and I went what? I turned around and I just saw like a corner of a hat walking through a door. And I went, what was that? Tosh? And he goes, it's Ray Davis. Fucking hell! I screamed at him. Why didn't you tell me? I was like, I couldn't. He, like, it's his. It's conk. We were there for three weeks. And it's just like, I, well, I never thought I'd see him even. I just thought, he just looked at me and he waved. And I, I waved back and I went, oh. And then I was in doing vocals and Sean came in, the bass player. I said, oh, I just spent an hour talking to Ray in the canteen. That's my Scouse accent. And uh, I went, what the f-? So everyone was meeting Ray Barmy and I was freaking him. But I got a message down from Chris Metzler. Chris, he's kind of a manager guy, but he's worked a lot with uh, a couple of Americana artists. But he kind of managed Ray for about 10 years. Tom Jones, he does stuff for as well. And so he messaged me and says, I know you're in Conk. Ray would like to come in and listen because he's been outside the studio on a few days listening to what you're doing and he really likes it. Now, imagine that. Ray is outside. I says, are you fucking serious? Yes, please. And it's funny, we were working on this track, Oh Happy Days, which is an old kind of title. And I come up with this idea that there's a kind of thing, there's a part of the melody that goes, ba, 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 ba. it's very Ray Davis. And I says, well, if we got Ray to go ba 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 ba, like, you know, because he invented ba 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 ba. <laughs> and my mind started walking down. I said, he's going to come in. You've got to ask him to do that. And in the meantime, I was speaking to Andy Partridge. And I said, Ray is going to come into the session. And he's like, oh, fucking hell, of all the things Andy's done, he's never worked with Ray or anything. So there was another line in the song, the response vocal. And I said, do you want to do the response vocal in your studio? And I'll put you in with me and Ray. And it happened, and it became this little two and a half minute track on that album, which is played this intimately as if among friends. And the weird thing is, that's a Ray Davis quote. And I come up with the album title before we even knew about Conk, because it was an interview with Ray, and he was talking about he was playing a lot of old music 
where he picked up these chord and song books from the 1800s, 1900s, because people didn't know what the songs were. They were just written down. They'd have things like play this intimately as if among friends. That's the way you should play it. Like the Italian things will say. Portamento and all that, whatever. Yes, exactly. You named your album that. So I named it and I thought, it's just a longer title than like a Manic Street Preacher's fucking album title because they always had really long album titles. And I was thinking, is it too long? And I just will play this intimately and as if among friends in brackets. And to be honest with you, you know when you get a title for an album, you know that, Louise. It's a great feeling when you get the right title. Yeah. It's a great fit. It's a very important part of it. And again, you might have said something very poignant earlier, which was, do these things matter anymore? But for me, and I'm sure for you, and I know for you, they do matter. You know, they matter a lot. The title of a record can say so much, you know? So what's that song called? It's called Oh Happy Days. Oh Happy Days. Do you remember today's Walking by the warmth of a solar haze Do you remember the time? And of course we went into the vocal booth together and I set up my really primitively I did it surreptitiously and just put it on record to record, you know, and I caught some footage. And it's very funny because I'm in this little build and Ray is going, where did that blanket come from? So there was a blanket being used as a baffler. And he went, that's the fucking same blanket we had in the van in the 60s. He says, well, I thought that was lost. He says, where did you get that? I says, fuck's sake, Guy Massey just found it and we put it over there. So Ray is going, that's the original King's blanket we used to have in the van and all this stuff. Incredible. I went over to sing a part with him or kind of say to him what it was, you know, just go, blah, blah. And he goes... Thomas, he says, you're too fat to stand in here with me because English people are very open about things like that. English, especially London people will say things like, you're looking fat, lady. Have you put on weight? They will say things like that. You know, he says to to stand in the booth with me because he couldn't get to the microphone. Oh. Yes. And he started laughing. And I said, it's just because you're wasting away. That's because, you know... I'm normal sized. You're just a fucking a kite. You know what I mean? I could fly you. All this joking. It's like insults among friends. In New York, back in the yeah. 50s and 60s, like a beat generation thing, they used to call exactly. it shooting the dozen. Hey, your mama, blah, blah, blah. No, no, your mama, blah, blah. And then they'd, you know, I'll insult you. You insult me because we love each other. And Yes. You know. And I often think if, say, a band from LA were in that studio and Ray said the same things, and they would have, because I know people from LA and I've said stupid things to them and silly things and then they've said something back because they know my sense of humor but they'd actually send me a message then six hours later i really hope i didn't offend you by saying that i really hope i didn't and i'm like no you don't be silly of course you didn't and when ray said it i was like fuck you you know like back at him and we had a great laugh and the thing was i know a lot of english people are really like that when it comes to me like english people they're not backwards and coming forwards as we say you know they will say it like it is like irish people and that's why we get on so well we have this love-hate relationship because of history but we know them so well and they know us so well they just know and i just thought that was brilliant because slagging ray davis you know i started giving them stuff back and all and it was just brilliant but he says come to my local pub that night we all went to the local pub and we sat for four hours with Ray and we sang every King song we knew and he harmonised, sang certain things. We did the whole Village Green album, a cappella. You were performing or you were sitting at a table at the pub? Sitting at a table, Ray's table in the Prince of Wales pub, his pub. And you know who came over to be involved? Steve Diggle from the Buzzcocks. 
because it's Steve Diggle's local, the guitar player. And I say this honestly, he was coked up as nut because he'd just come back from a, a festival in, in Europe and he, up to even a few years ago, he was still doing that. And he was just like... <laughs> and talk about such a classic, iconic punk figure, pop music figure, as Steve Diggle is with the Buzzcocks. We were like, can he not just go away? Because Ray Davis is at the end of the table. And it's like, he's the man. He's in charge. And we just had the most... I mean, we, we floated on air from that night. Incredible. That's amazing. So keep going with your favourites. So the last album then, which is the last album I did, which was Silver Lake with Jason, because it gets us on to Jason, I suppose. And in fairness, well, in fairness, with that album, I probably picked Without You, which is called Without Me, because I was very conscious of calling a song Without You, because there's been some very famous songs called Without You, as we know. P. Ham, Tom Evans from Badfinger writing Without You, and Harry Nielsen having the, you know. I can't so. live. Exactly. And I was like, so it's called Without Me, but didn't for some reason get printed on the album. So weird. I don't even know how it did because I didn't fucking write it in. So it goes between both titles, but it's called Without Me. But it's actually, it'll come up as Without You, probably if you search. But I really liked the way I wrote that song. It was a little bit different. It did have a kind of Macken melody. It has that kind of swingy macket, I suppose, but I wasn't sitting down consciously. He comes out everywhere, doesn't he? So I picked that song on Silver Lake. Silver Lake was tough, but it was so enjoyable because, you know, Jason's such a talent, but, you know, he's a tough talent. There's a reason why he's brilliant, you know? And I love the guy, but it was a struggle at the end. But being in LA making a record was a dream come true and I wanted to make a poppy bright record and I knew Jason would be the man. What I wanted to do with the whole process of Silver Lake was to give over the record to Jason because I wanted to write the songs, obviously, which I did. All the songs, lyrics, everything. I always have everything down pat, really, pretty much 99.9%. It's all there. Arrangements, same thing. It all goes, starts to develop in there and it's all there. So... Once I knew and he got the songs, we walked out the right songs to pick because I had about 20 and we picked 12 or 14. That was all fine. And then I says, okay, I'll do my usual. I put all the acoustics down. I'm like a metronome and stuff like that. So acoustics down. And then I did a bit of drums and stuff because I like the drum on the odd track. And then only little bits of other things because I'm not musically adept with piano and all that, but little bits and then all the vocals pretty much. So that would be my thing which I'm very happy with, but I wasn't going to get embroiled in all the other bits and pieces. I was paying Jason to do all that. That was the thing, you know, and I wanted to bring his genius and his stuff, which he did. But what I found with certain things was that with someone who was like that, certain people like that, in a way, they kind of start to think it was their project. Mm. But can you ever remember in your career, have you ever consciously given over the reins of a record to somebody else? Because that's what I did with Silverlight, because I wanted to do that. I mean, I've always been integral to every aspect of my records. Do you regret having done that? No, I don't. I really don't. It was 95% such fun. It really was. But the reason why 
it ended a little sour was that Jason was doing great stuff on it and he was kind of annoyed he was doing great stuff on it because he actually said to me which is a quote and I'll say I haven't said this to many people at all especially not in the public domain but he kind of said I'm putting too much gold on this you know what I mean he was kind of annoyed that he trying to finish his own record for a long time. And he was coming up with some really cool ideas that he thought, well, I was keep them. Yeah. That's a weird one. I've never been involved in a, in a session like that. I've never been involved in something where somebody got annoyed at me because they were doing good stuff on the record as the engineer, co-producer. And I said, so what do you think my reaction should be? Do you think I should be pissed off that you're doing good stuff? Do you think I should say to you, do bad stuff, Jason? Because that's why I paid you to do bad stuff. I didn't understand anywhere of where he was coming from, but I understood that it, it was coming from a place where he's such a talent. He says things like that and almost regrets it instantly, which he kind of did. Well, it sounds like somebody who's thinking out loud when... Exactly that. It sounds like something he wanted to say to himself. Why am I giving away my good stuff when I should be working on my own, saving this for myself? But he probably said it to you in a moment that would be regretful, but... I've never given my project away by choice. I have done it to answer your question. When I was younger and I made my first couple of records, I just didn't know how to do anything. Mm -hmm. And it was frustrating to hear a sound in my head and not know how to get it and be dependent on other people to somehow interpret what it is I wanted. But I was too inexperienced to put my own signature on it. Of course, yeah. And that's just how you learn. It's funny because we're, and this is something I want to say honestly to you. During your career, so when I've noticed you from this part of the world and stuff, it was never an approach on my end that you were, you know, uh, the Goffening King's daughter. Do you know what I mean? There was never that stigma. So you look at other artists and you go, oh yeah, he's related to him. Oh yeah, and he's the son of him. And I think there's everyone else I've noticed in music who've had siblings or, you know, had their parents and they've had brothers or whatever. And you kind of go, there. Were you, I think you had your own buzz right from the start. I took you away from your history. And even as much as you're so proud of it, obviously, you know, it's, it's wonderful. You forged your own furrow, I suppose, in your musical career. There's never been a case where you've been compared even, because it doesn't even make sense. You have your own buzz, you have your own style. And I think even with those early records, even you saying you didn't know how to do them and all, but you put your signature on them even that early. Oh, well, I appreciate you saying that. I really mean that because it never... I mean, even looking at you playing at the... That Hyde Park gig is, is something else, isn't it? Oh, Hyde Park, yeah. That was something else because, you know, especially with the band you have, which is incredible, but it just showed the level of your right and the fact that it flowed as a separate thing. Do you know what I mean? The thing is, I've always been compared because you're an artist and artists look at things differently, but in the world, people just go by, you know, what's famous or what they know and they don't try very hard. And Well, I'm talking about journalists here. I mean, I'm not talking about other artists because, I mean, I, I never associate with, I mean, I only know the background, but it never, all the music was just completely you and, but anyway, you're probably saying you must have got a hell of a lot of it when you're going with journalists. Yeah, that's a whole other interview. You can interview me once. <laughs> yeah. No, it's okay. I apologize. Yes, Telma and Louise. But uh, Well, I like it because you have such deep musical knowledge. Well, look at... You ask good questions. But you know, it, it's funny because when I met someone like uh, Jeff for the first time, Jeff Lynn, right? I mean, I'm going to Jeff Lynn's house, Louise. And I've been told by his best friend, Roger Spencer, who was in his old band, The Idol Race. And see, I got to know The Idol Race band before, I, obviously, I knew Jeff, in a way, because I'm such a fan of that band. 
and they're all Birmingham, England people. And, you know, I met them at gigs because we toured with Duckwood Lewis and we met them and we brought them along. And huge moments for me, you know. But Jeff had got to hear Pugwash and stuff like that. And he really liked it. And, of course, Jeff sent me a letter. That's how it all started. He sent me a letter in the post, which is another great story anyway. But that was just an amazing, amazing moment. It's got to be framed up there on your wall somewhere. It's like- framed, but it's still in the boxes, would you uh, believe, at yeah. the moment. Yeah. But the thing was, it was Roger who had asked Jeff, Thomas is going to be in Los Angeles. It was one of the first times he'd seen it on the internet that I was going to tour with Bugwash. And he inquired with Jeff. And Jeff said, yeah. But, and Roger got back to me, I remember at the time, and said, there's a chance maybe you might get a call when you're in LA. And I was like, fuck off, Roger. Don't say things like this. And he goes, let me just say, if it happens, he says, Paul McCartney doesn't get invited to Jeff Lynn's house. Do you know what I mean? He was saying things like that, and I was saying, please don't. And I, I went there just not thinking anything. And we were in the van driving across L.A. one day to go to it. I think it was to meet some people down in downtown or whatever. And my phone rang, a number I never knew. Actually, I tell a lie. Katya's phone rang because Roger said, give me a contact number. Katya is your girlfriend, so people know. Yes, beautiful Katya. And, but the thing was, she had an American phone, obviously, because she lives in L.A. Yeah. So... Her phone rang in the back of the van. I was in the front seat. And she looked at the phone and, she, and I turned around whatever, and she went, hello? Oh, oh, hello, Jeff, she says. I swear to God, piss came out of my, you know what? I nearly lost. I fucking froze. And I went, fuck off. And, and all the lads are going, whoa, you know, doing all the cheering. And she goes, yeah, he's here. Yeah, he's here. Yeah. And, and she goes, Thomas, it's, it's Jeff Lynn. <laughs> I picked the phone. I just went, hello, Jeff? Oh, Tom, you know, the brummy accent. I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> I still, I look at me, I'm almost going to get emotional. It's too much. And he was so funny and so nice. And he says, can you come over tomorrow? I'm free tomorrow. Come over at four, you know. I'm like, yeah, I'll be over at 6 a.m. for fuck's sake. <laughs> you know, and I'll still never forget. And I went about four times in the end uh, over the years. And uh, it does make me speechless in a way. But what I was going to say to you was getting back to our point. I only got through the incredible feeling of personal experience of meeting Jeff Lynne in his own home. I only got through it through my knowledge of him. Because I was like straight away, I knew aspects of him that would make him laugh almost. You know, I'd known so much about him. And I knew certain things I could speak about that I loved as well as he loved. You know, Monty Python and Beatles, you know, all that stuff. And the first thing I did when I went into his house, though, was I needed to go to the toilet desperately. And Camelia, his other half, was there. You know, Camelia Katz, who was married to Terry Katz from Chicago. And she was married to Kiefer Sutherland. So that's Jeff's current beau, Camelia. And... She was there talking to Katya and we were in the kitchen and the toilet just off the kitchen. And I went down having a piss in Jeff Lynn's toilet. You know, I was going through all the emotions. But there was a lovely piece of like a Waterford crystal or something over the toilet, this little globe. And of course I couldn't resist. So I finished my ablutions or whatever I was doing. And I picked it up and I walked straight out. And of course, everyone looking at me walking out, just reaction. And I says, Katya, Katya, put that in your bag. I kept pretending to give her the glass thing to steal. That was the joke. And he started breaking his shite laughing because it was a total, you know, put that in your bag, you know, in front of everyone. And of course, comedy will always break the, uh, the 
we had such a great time. I mean, it was such such fun, such great stories. I mean, there is a great George Harrison story you told me, which I'd love to tell you. Yeah. Well, the big thing, getting back to the first talk with Lewis Method was we got nominated for an Ivan Novello Award for Album of the Year for Songwriting. And it's the proudest moment of my musical life. And me and Neil went to the Grosvenor Hotel in London. I'm sure you've been. Mm-hmm. And everyone was there. Like, I couldn't believe it. Like, Neil Sedaki was at the next table. Annie Lennox was there. You know, Lily Allen was there. And then Kylie Minogue was over there. Oasis, Noel Gallagher was over there. Ridiculous. And you know, sat at our table with us, with our crew, Don Black. You know, Don Black, the lyricist? Well, he's written all the greatest lyrics, <laughs> including all the Bond teams and famous yeah. Don Black. Anyway, he was getting a lifetime achievement, he thing. Uh, 10CC were there, Eric Stewart, and it was just ridiculous, right? Ridiculous. And we were up against Paolo Nutini and Dizzy Rascal, who one is a rap star and the other one is a Scottish songwriter. Very nice fella. Simon Le Bon was given our award out. Talk about name dropping. But we didn't win it. We were beaten by Pelle Natini. And he was very gracious in his victory speech about us, which was lovely. But I got so close to an Ivan Novello. It was just an amazing thing. They were on the stage on a table and the, the little stubby things. And they're just, I was just like, oh, so close. So when I arrived at Jeff's, when you walk into his kitchen area, there's a little alcove, like a, like a fireplace kind of thing that's taken out. And in the little fireplace was three Ivan Novellos. I recognised them. And I walked over and says, I see your Ivan Novellos there. And he goes, yeah. And I went over and he got one for Out of the Blue, best album, 78 it was. Best song for Xanadu in 1980. And he got a Lifetime Achievement Songwriting Award in 95. So we had three. And of course, typical brummy humour. I says to him, I almost won one of those. And he goes, oh, you didn't win one, did you? As if, you know, you should have won one. Like walking down the street buying a can of Coke. Now, it's not that easy, Jeff, you know, especially for a working class Dublin lad. And he goes, oh, I've got three. And he goes, but he says, that doesn't compare to George. And, you know, he'd say George and he'd be talking about George Harrison. And I go, what do you mean? You know, what did George do? With his? And he goes, well, he says, one of the first times I visited George, I went up to the house and I was nervous. And Olivia answered the door and said, he's down in the garden. Now, of course, Friar Park is like, you know, central fucking park. So, I mean, it's huge. So he's just down the garden planting, she says. Go down and meet me. He's expecting you. He's, he's waiting for me. So Jeff said he walked down the little pathway and he, he saw something in the distance and he heard a bit of rustling. And George went, hey, Jeff, over here, you know. And Jeff toddled over. And he says he walked over and he, he says there was about five or six Ivan Novellos on the ground. And George was standing there and, of course, Jeff had won a couple by then, obviously, so he knew. And he says, he says, story, George, why were the fellows? And he goes, oh, yeah, they're great for planting seeds. He says, if you ever lift one up, they're really heavy on the bottom. They're perfectly round. And George is just sticking oil and the bellows in the grill and putting seeds in. They're perfect for stomping the ground, for planting seeds. And he had, the, you know, one for let it be or one for fucking Sergeant Peppers or whatever the fuck. I just thought, my God. Wow. Yes. It's all perspective, isn't it? Yes. That's a great story. I'm glad I got that story in. That was, it's a great one. It's a great <clears> one. <throat> was George and Olivia, was this in England or was it in LA? Oh, no, it was Fur Park. It was Henley on Thames, this big oh. place in England. You know, with all things was passed. He's sitting with the gnomes. Oh, that place. Yeah. Yeah, that whole place is home. Yeah. And, you know, the thing is, if we get together, if we even do it like this again in whatever capacity, I mean, the stories you'd have, great to hear. Because obviously you've got ridiculous fucking stories. From over the years. Well, do you mind if I just take a selfie of the screen? Oh, go right ahead. Yeah, brilliant. So I'll take a picture. What the fuck? It should look like this all the time. <laughs> Podcast. Podcast face. Brilliant. 
All right. Well, great talking to you. I like your teacup. It looks like you're in a ladies' store. Well, you look about 25 years fucking old. That's the problem. Woman. I do all these ridiculous things, you know. I'm gluten-free, dairy-free. Yes, I'm happy. That has a lot to do with it. Exercise, drink water. And this is almost the opposite. But uh, There used to be a couch and you were sitting right here and I still have that idea we started. I know. There was construction going on as well. Is that still happening? Oh my God, the worst. There's construction uh, below me, next to me, across the street from me, down the street from me. It's great talking to you. It's such an honor and I love you, Louise. Love you too. I think this is fantastic. Thanks for thinking of me because, you know, I probably badgered you into it, but thank you. You suggested it once. It takes me a month to get over the last one. <laughs> Quality, not quantity. Love from Ireland. I'll see you soon. All right, see you soon. Cheers. Thanks, Bye. Louise. See you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you, Thomas, for that in-depth and highly educational conversation. Join us next time to hear from Lady Blackbird. Torch my heart, burn my soul. An incredible genre-defying jazz vocalist who combines understated arrangements with over-the-top costumes and attitude. Box of cinders, five feet tall. And the award-winning producer, songwriter, musician, and singer Chris Seafried, who produced Lady Blackbird's incredibly sublime and chart-topping debut album, Black Acid Soul. If you're enjoying these episodes, please leave us a review wherever you stream. We'd love to hear from you. I'm your host and producer, Louise Goffin. We'll see you soon. <laughs>